Obama's under fire over Afghanistan from one of his own statesmen. We hear about the book that's causing a stir in the White House. What's happening in Iraq? Two key cities are being held by insurgents linked to al-Qaeda. Does the armed forces covenant actually work? MPs are trying to find out. And Putin's mobilising his troops ahead of the Winter Olympics in Sochi. White House officials have been defending President Obama after a scathing attack by a former U.S. Defense Secretary. Robert Gates, who held the post from 2006 until 2011, has published his memoirs, but it it isn't enjoyable bedtime reading for the current U.S. President. I'm joined in the studio by our defense analyst, Christopher Lee, and also from Washington by Simon Marks, chief correspondent of Feature Story News. Hello to both of you. Simon, what's Robert Gates been saying in this book exactly. Well, this is a pretty devastating indictment, it has to be said, Kate, of the way in which the Obama administration's foreign policy uh, team has been functioning, led by President Obama himself. Robert Gates, uh, of course, who served both Republican and Democrat presidents in the past in a variety of different positions, uh, says essentially that he came to the conclusion that President Obama didn't believe in the mission uh, in Afghanistan with regard to the surge of U.S. forces there. Uh, The inference being, and it is only an inference that people are drawing, uh, that President Obama was sending U.S. troops into harm's way in Afghanistan without being convinced uh, that the military strategy of surging troops there was going to work, that he had very tense relationships with military commanders, including uh, General David Petraeus, uh, and that Vice President Joe Biden was, as far as Robert Gates describes it, wrong on every major issue of foreign policy that crossed his desk during the first four years of the Obama administration. So it's a devastating indictment. Christopher Lee, why do you think Robert Gates has chosen to let this be published now? Well, I mean, because, because he's not anything at the moment. Uh, I mean, these are his memoirs. I mean, he's out, of, he, he, he's out of office, but he is not out of influence. What is interesting about uh, Bob Gates, he's a really calm safe pair of hands. When he went from one administration to the other, from Bush to, uh, to, uh, to Obama, it was because he was, he was in command of the whole thing, there was a great deal happening in the Pentagon and everybody trusted him. But when he turns around and says, uh, you know, about Biden in four years, didn't really put anything together and didn't understand what the heck was going on. I mean, I know that Gates actually didn't think Biden was very good anyway and that he should have been kept just to go to the, you know, the, most, you know, the smartest funerals in Addis Ababa or something like that. But what is fascinating, uh, I think particularly fascinating on this now, is that this one point, he says, Obama did not believe in the Afghan mission. Now that, you then tie in with what the United Kingdom was supposed to believe because the United Kingdom was very heavily supporting Obama. Simon, why do you think he's decided to allow this fuss to be made right now by this publication? 
Well, I do think it's curious, Kate, and I think Christopher is absolutely correct to point out that Robert Gates is a man who, at least until uh, the newspapers thudded on everybody's doorsteps yesterday, was held in uniquely high esteem by Democrats and Republicans alike. And the reason why this criticism stings so much is because he is genuinely considered a very deep thinker, not the kind of man who makes headline-grabbing appearances on television uh, simply for the case of accruing publicity. So the only conclusion one can draw from that is he genuinely uh, had uh, very grave concerns about what he was seeing inside the White House. He wants to get those on the record, and presumably he wants to get them on the record now uh, in order, partly at least, to try and change behaviour inside the Obama administration during its remaining time in office. Which brings me to my next question. What kind of impact is it happening having? Because if this being the last year of the combat operations in Afghanistan. Look, look, I think you could see the strain etched in the face of White House spokesman Jay Carney during uh, his briefing at the White House here on Wednesday. Uh, There is no question that this is uh, an act of betrayal as far as the White House is concerned. Remember, President Obama gave Robert Gates the Medal of Freedom shortly after he left uh, the Pentagon on his final day. Uh, But there is also no question that it forces uh, the White House to answer questions. And what they've said is uh, President Obama is deeply committed to the strategy uh, in Afghanistan, that of course it's uh, correct, uh, and President Obama would be remiss if he didn't believe in healthy debate and listening to different opinions among the men and women who surround him around the cabinet table. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I think there's no question that if you're a military family reading the reports of what Mr Gates has had to say and knowing the general strain that has existed in the relationship between Barack Obama and senior commanders, uh, this is going to be a concerning read. Christopher. Simon, New York Times this morning, a great, great picture. And it's a picture of Obama and his vice president, Biden, having (laughs) lunch lunch together. Do you see it? (laughs) Right. And they're sitting across a completely bare table and they've got little napkins and they've got their plates and knives and forks and spoons. This is to show unity, right? Take a look at it. There is nothing absolutely nothing on the plates. And I think that sums up the relationship. It is is what we always used to call Kremlinology back in the old days. come on. It could just be slow service, let's face it. (laughs) Exactly. Uh, Christopher, just wanted to mention this other criticism today uh, that's coming out in another publication. It's of Britain's war strategy, or lack of it, it, from Professor Hugh Strawn saying in his book, The Direction of War, Britain bungled its involvement in Iraq and Afghanistan and is guilty of strategic failure over Syria. Yeah, and I tell you, I know that Hugh Strawn thinks this is the same with America, and it ties in with very much what you've just been talking to Simon about. His, Hugh Strawn is, uh, advises the military. So the military in the United Kingdom will be very pleased that he's saying this, because the military believes that the British government has no idea. When you say they're going to be pleased, what, Because why? they're pleased what, what he's they saying to, it. Why? Because what? the military believes that the British government in particular, certain ministers, certainly Cameron, Prime Minister, certainly the Foreign Secretary, uh, uh, William Hague, don't know what they're supposed to use the military for. They don't know how to use the military. They don't understand strategy. They don't know how you use the military in certain aspects. So, I mean, for example, when do you use special forces? When do you use military as, as diplomatic power, etc.? Et and this concept that we've got a military, but they actually don't know what you do with it. And it is, was all right I when... Mean, I, th- I think no, the Defence Secretary no, would probably take issue with what you're I saying. Know, they don't include... <laughs> he doesn't include the Defence Secretary in this. 
It's the other bozos across the other side of Whitehall. Now, the important thing about this... You're getting uh, us in trouble at the beginning of no, the year already, not. Christopher. No, no, no. Now, let me tell you, and what is really, really important about this is that the both the United States and the United Kingdom didn't have any problems when there was a Cold War. It was a state versus state, right? You knew what you did. You bought, you bought more missiles or you didn't. You had tanks, etc., and you deployed troops. When you come down to what you call asymmetric warfare, and you've got to know what power do your troops actually have and what sort of forces, he is saying they don't understand. And I think he's saying the same thing about America and exactly what Simon's saying about Gates in his book. Gates is effectively saying Obama didn't know what to do with his forces. He was for the troops... But it wasn't for the war. All right, let's talk about another thorny issue, about Iraq, where violence has been escalating in recent weeks. Al-Qaeda-linked fighters and Sunni tribes have taken control of Ramadi and Fallujah in Iraq's Anbar province to the west of Baghdad. The situation in Basra is nowhere near as bad, but Major General Graham Binns, who commanded the Desert Rats during the city's siege at the start of Optelic, says things have changed. There is terrorism... Um, it's mostly imported from other provinces in Iraq. There are precious few serious incidents uh, in Basra. That doesn't mean it will remain so. And the, the governor of Basra is, is very keen to improve the safety and security of uh, his citizens. General Binns is now at the helm of a private security firm working with the city's local authorities. He says he's hopeful Basra won't go the same way as Fallujah. I'm hugely reassured by the uh, attitude of the people of Basra, which is the place that I know well. Sure, it's got security problems, um, but it's got enormous potential um, if and when it can overcome that, those security problems. Well, Simon Marks is still with us, as is Christopher Lee. Simon, what's going on exactly? Look, there's a big problem uh, in Iraq. Uh, President Obama has spent the last couple of years, indeed partly one re-election, based around the claim that he ended the war in Iraq. And evidently the war in Iraq is far from over. There is now tremendous pressure uh, on Fallujah. There's tremendous pressure in Anbar province. Uh, this is gravely concerning to uh, military strategists here and also to foreign policy strategists. It fell uh, to the aforementioned vice President Joe Biden to reach out to the Iraqi uh, Prime Minister Nouri al-Maliki earlier in the week and uh, offer uh, U.S. support. But that support uh, falls short of any suggestion that uh, boots might end up on uh, Iraqi soil again, American boots ending up on the ground. So there's a real conundrum here, and it puts President Obama's foreign policy legacy, one of the things, the few things that he can point to, the, the, the cessation uh, of hostilities in Iraq, uh, at risk. Christopher, um, there has been violence in Iraq for some time now. Do you get a sense, though, that things are changing and that the threat is, is actually at the point of changing for a long time, but given the proximity of this to Syria? Changed, it changed at the end of the war. Let's, let's put this in some perspective. When Saddam Hussein was in power, Saddam Hussein's lot uh, were Sunnis. When he lost power, the Shias, who had been the downtrodden minorities, they took over. Um, Prime Minister Maliki is a Shia, and he is playing revenge politics, basically. And the Sunnis, now guided by, or enforced by, or directed by Al-Qaeda in Iraq, are actually knocking off towns and villages one by one to get control. Switch to Syria, and you have, for example, uh, Assad 
is, is really a Shia. He may be an Alawite, but that's a branch of the Shias, right? The people that are fighting, the Islamists that are fighting against Assad, are, are Sunnis. Nip up to Iran, they are Shias. And what we're seeing here is the great beginnings of the confrontation in, in statehood of Shias and Sunnis. And the, and the Sunni al-Qaeda ambition is to have a separate state, a Sunni state, an Islamic state, which will include uh, Syria and Iraq eventually. And so far, they're ahead of the game. I mean, Simon was talking about um, how this might reflect on Obama's legacy. Do you think this is now a problem that has to be dealt with in that region by those people? Is there anything that the, the others, the West can do? What you're, what you're going to find is that the West have got the biggest interest of all in that, and the, and, and that the title of that is oil, and keeping the Straits of Hormuz open, etc. But the Americans, what they're doing, I think this is right, Simon, is that they're hurrying up supplies of Hellfire missiles, mm. etc., to support... Uh, to 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 support uh, Maliki, but at the moment they think they may be supporting the only guy in town, and they disapprove of him. So, Simon, do you get a sense in the US that that the people there really care about any of this? Well, I think that there is an awareness that there's a problem um, as to whether they care sufficiently to deploy very much foreign policy attention and particularly uh, to commit any kind of ongoing force, I think is another very big question and the outcome of that question would be uh, doubtful. Uh, but they are also very aware here of the potentially interfering role that Iran may play. The best case uh, that the administration here has been able to make is that uh, while Iran has offered to help Iraq, uh, the Iraqi government hasn't yet formally requested any Iranian assistance. Well, of course, half the problem is that most of the Iranian action that takes place in Iraq is not necessarily of a formal nature. It has been of a very informal nature uh, for a good long while now. And it's very hard to divorce uh, the conversation here about Iraq, the conversation about Afghanistan, from the conversation about Iran, which in an electoral cycle, and we're heading into one here, becomes more of a potent issue for the various candidates jostling to succeed Barack Obama in the White House. All right, Simon Marks in Washington, thanks for your time today. Sit rep with Still to come, Putin prepares his troops ahead of the Winter Olympics in Sochi. BFBS Sit rep. MPs on the House of Commons Defence Committee are turning their attention to military casualties as part of their ongoing inquiry into the Armed Forces Covenant. The MPs have been following the progress of the MOD's work to address the recovery of servicemen and women, as well as the work done by the NHS and other agencies to support the wounded, injured or sick who've been discharged from the forces. Well, chair of the committee is James Arbuthnot. Hello to you, James. The committee looked at this issue back in 2011. Can you remind us what issues you identified? back then? Yes, we did, and we looked at it also in the last Parliament, because it's obviously an extremely important issue for the armed forces. Um, one thing I would say is that the stories that the Select Committee uh, discovers 
are often really good ones and the health treatment of our armed forces is really, in general, outstanding. For example, Queen Elizabeth Hospital, rehabilitation at Headley Court, really very good. More people are surviving than would have done in previous conflicts. Uh, we need to ensure that that's maintained throughout their lives. But the things that we're going to be coming back on particularly now are the issues about mental health problems resulting from deployment, uh, Alcohol misuse, there was, uh, we, we found that there was too much of it. Uh, we're also a bit worried about uh, the way people will be treated when they're eventually discharged, uh, medically discharged or otherwise, into the care of the national health system and how that will work in their later lives. Members of the service community can submit written evidence to the inquiry. Who do you want to hear from exactly? Well, we do want to hear from uh, members of the service community, but uh, the community involves includes uh, families as well. It includes uh, anyone who is working with wounded uh, veterans, with injured, sick personnel, medical services, charities, for example. Um, but we will be hoping for evidence from everybody who has something to say about this. And how do they get in touch? Um, I, uh, I was going to say I could read out the website <laughs> address, but I don't think I could, actually. I think it would be much better to Google House of Commons Defence Select Committee, um, and th there you will find all the details. You just uh, go in via the website and send us evidence. All right, now let's talk now about the wider aspects of the Armed Forces Government. A long-term inquiry, do you feel you're making progress? It's always a bit difficult to work out and to be sure that we are making progress. But what we are doing is we're keeping this issue in the front of fronts of the minds of the Ministry of Defence. Now, I am sure that they would have it in the fronts of their minds anyway, but it always helps if they know that they're going to be questioned about yeah, it. It's interesting that you say it, keeping it in the fronts of people's minds because of this report that you, you issued this week about the concern of what the public may not understand the purpose of the armed forces after Afghanistan. Do you think if the public no longer understand it, then the impact of something like the armed forces covenant will actually re be reduced as a result? Well, there is a risk of that. Um, and it's interesting to note that before the First World War, the public was demanding that the government should spend more money on building battleships. It would be wonderful to think that they might, the public might start doing that now. But uh, at the moment, all the demand from the public is to spend more money on health, on law and order, on schools, things like that. The armed forces deserve our attention as well. So how many more stages are there to this for you? Well, the committee is going to be keeping a constant eye on the Covenant. Uh, and we've already covered most of the important aspects of it. Medical care, we've looked at accommodation, we've looked at education. But now what we'll be doing is following up the inquiries that we've already done and doing secondary inquiries like this one on military casualties. All right, James Arbuthnot, thank you very much for your time today. Thank you. This is BFBS. Sit, Red. 
President Putin has put 30,000 troops on combat alert ahead of the Winter Olympics in Sochi. There have been suicide bombings and other attacks on Russia in recent weeks. The BBC's diplomatic correspondent Bridget, Bridget Kendall joins us now. Uh, Bridget, we talk about terrorists, but who are these people exactly? And are they the same uh, and, or a mixture like in Syria, for example? Well, when the, the Russian government talks about terrorists, the people they have in mind are militants in the North Caucasus. This is the mountainous area between Russia, right at the south of Russia, uh, and uh, bordering onto Azerbaijan and Georgia further south. And uh, this is the area which includes the uh, little Russian um, province called Chechnya, which for the last well, the last 20 years really has been a centre of militancy and there have been a couple of wars there. And although it's now under the control of a president who's loyal to Moscow, there are still some insurgents who are hidden away, possibly in the high mountains, possibly in other places. And they now and again come out with statements and they now and again make trouble. And many people think that uh, another thing that has happened is that, uh, if you like, the Russian security effort to make Chechnya come under Russia's control again has subdued Chechnya, but it's been like putting down a big boot in a puddle and the drops have gone elsewhere. And now throughout the Muslim, mainly Muslim republics in this area of the North Caucasus, which is inside Russia and right next to Chechnya, there are still a lot of disgruntled people. Uh, and some of them are linked to these insurgents from Chechnya. And some of them have a very Islamic aim. They really want to have an Islamic state across the North Caucasus. So the disgruntlement goes from people who want autonomy or who don't like the way they're ruled from Russia to those who have a much more proactive aim of spreading Islamism throughout that area. Among these people is this man who's been described as Russia's bin Laden. Tell us a bit more about him and how much of a threat he is. That's right, Doku Umarov, who recently um, came out with a statement saying that militants in the region should use maximum force to try and stop the Sochi games going ahead. You have to realise Sochi's right bang up next to all these very, un, very turbulent areas and so in a way it's it probably feels quite provocative to these militants that President Putin has said, I'm going to have my Olympic Games here. And we've already had these two suicide bomb attacks in Volgograd, which is 600 miles away, but it's still in the south of Russia. Before that one on a trolley bus is a kind of, no one's claimed responsibility, but it looks like um, Doku Umarov and, and, and his militants might have had some link to it. And maybe this is a calling card to say this is what we're going to do ahead of the Olympics or around the Olympics. Christopher, what is at stake here for President Putin? Well, it's a question, isn't it? I mean, in, as far as the West's concerned, who usually managed to get it wrong about Putin in so many things, is this Russia against terrorism or is it, in fact, Putin against terrorism? And uh, as Bridget would say, you know, you, you start putting it in context when you think, well, you know, that's 600 miles away, but in Russia, that's not, you know, 600 miles away is okay. It's you, close. <laughs> you, you, you can do that. I think let's put it in another perspective. Uh, uh, Munich Games, was it 72, 76 Munich Games? Oh, uh, and that's when all this security thing against terrorism started. Then we had the Salt Lake Winter Olympics right after 9-11. The security operation was tremendous for that. We had the 2012 Games in, in London, missiles on the top of apartment blocks. So let's not sort of isolate the Russians and say it's all down to you. But as far as the United Kingdom is concerned, it's fascinating. Uh, GCHQ 
is supplying a heck of a lot of intelligence to the Russians on what they know what's going on. So are the Americans. It's in everybody's interest that the Winter Games go. And this is not, you know, they don't just say, oh, well, Putin, you've got a hard lock story here. They've, it's their interest to make sure it goes smoothly. So you've got the tremendous cooperation, partly through NATO, by the way, and through the NATO Council as well. Information going to the uh, Russian intelligence people saying, this is what we have on the movement of terrorist organizations, ambitions, listening to telephone calls, etc. Bridget, how seriously do you think uh, Russians are really taking Making these threats ahead of the Olympic Games, the Winter Olympics? I think pro- both the government and the population probably pretty seriously. Um, the government knows that there's been a long history of these sorts of attacks, and although they seem to emanate from the North Caucasus, from people linked to these Chechen militants, in the past they've taken place in the Moscow underground, uh, on trains, at Moscow airports, you know, it's not just down in the south. And uh, the security arrangements that have been put in place ahead of the Olympics, the ring of steel that there's going to be that already is around Sochi. They're also bringing in stricter rules at Moscow airports. And President Putin has staked his reputation on these games. These are his games. This is to show the world that Russia is back. It's strong. It's powerful. It can put on a tremendous show. And he knows that these militants who are opposed to him will do what they can to try and spoil his party. And of course, they don't need to get inside Sochi to do that. If there's a terrible bomb attack in Moscow or somewhere else in Russia, it'll get the same publicity. And I think Russian people... The risk is actually somewhere else. It's far from Sochi, perhaps. Well, I think that's what, the, um, to, to my mind, that's what those bombs in Volgograd said. It's a big city. It's very important to Russia. It used to be called Stalingrad. It's a symbolic city that stood up to the Nazis in World War II. It's very important. But any big city in Russia, if they could infiltrate, put in a bomb, have it cause a lot of damage, uh, civilians in Russia know that these things have happened in the past. And I think the, the, the real question here is, yes, there is all this Western cooperation that Chris was talking about, really important, especially the intelligence stuff. But in the past, the deployment of lots of police and interior ministry troops from Russia and checkpoints and so forth have not been able to stop these terrorist attacks. Remember the one that was in, the terrible one that was at that school in Beslan, in, in, in the North Caucasus. There were supposed to be lots of checks in place, but it turned out that the Russian security services either were just incompetent or there was too much corruption or they went, who knows what was going wrong. And I think the worry from ordinary Russians will be there's been a big show from their government, from President Putin, that there's going to be a lockdown at the Olympics. But A, what about the rest of the country? And B, will this show really work in practice? Christopher? There's only one small thing here. I mean, the two is the symbolism. I mean, Stalingrad, uh, Volgograd, Stalingrad was one of the most important symbolic battles of, of the great patriotic war that's still very important in people's minds. The other thing is that Russian intelligence, uh, Russian security people are reluctant to say to a lot of the Western agencies, yes, yeah, please help us on this one. They think we can handle this by ourselves and there's a lot, so, so much more at stake. All right, Bridget Kendall, thank you very much for your time today. Um, Christopher, before we go, um, let's look ahead for the year and anything that's been moving. Let's talk about North Korea to start with. Yeah, the Americans uh, next month are going to deploy 800 men. That's a battalion, armoured infantry battalion, plus an armoured recce battalion into South Korea. Now, they're allowed to have something like 28 28,500 troops there, which they've got at the moment. They're going to pull a few out and they're putting these very specialist forces in, especially the reconnaissance unit, and they're also putting in some Abrams tanks. That tells you a lot what they're getting a bit twitchy about North Korea yet again. Oh, Syria. 
Syria, um, the Russians are about to veto, they'll do it on Monday, I think, veto a United Kingdom resolution condemning Assad's uh, army attack on Aleppo. And the Russians are going to sort of condemn that and say, no, we're not going to have that wording, we'll, we'll water that right down, because they still believe... And some are coming round to it. They still believe that at some point you're going to have to deal with Assad because the rebels are fouling things up. Let's um, talk about the year ahead in Afghanistan. Obviously, we've got the elections coming up, first of all. Yeah, Hamid uh, Karzai, who... <laughs> Part of the, th- the Gates thing we started off, you know, the program talking about, and uh, uh, Robert Gates saying, well, uh, uh, Obama wasn't interested in what was going on in Afghanistan. Most of all, he detests, he detests Hamid Karzai. He cannot stand why he's in there. He sees the whole thing as corrupt. And so the thing to remember is that Karzai is on his way out. This spring, the elections, out he goes. Uh, and so watch for the name. So that, that could be a very positive step, potentially, couldn't it? As long as, yeah, as long as everybody else actually votes for the right person. Because otherwise, then you get a complete rumble there. And the man to watch is Ab- uh, Abdullah what? Abdullah. What about, what about the signing of this agreement, which is necessary for any international troops to remain in Afghanistan? That's still in, not done. No, that's all in place. And if he can hang out a bit longer, he's, he then feels he's, he's, still, he's still important. And that, I suspect, that's what it's all about. By the way, there's something else which has come up. Because oh, uh, Can I come back to the Obama thing? Uh, one of the things that Gates didn't like were all these consultants that were in the White House and telling the generals what to do. Picked up something just about four or five hours ago. The... the the uh, British MOD, the MOD, last year spent sixty-six million pounds on new consultants. <laughs> um, it doubled the size of consultants at the Do you time. Get any, any idea in what kind of areas this would be? Oh yeah, I've got it all. Um, but the most important part of it, it came at a time when the guys they were supposed to be telling what to do. We're getting instructions to get rid of 30,000 troops. It's incredible, isn't it? Um, anything else to look out for just for next week, let's say? Yeah, next. well, I think, I think watch the Syria debate next week becomes more and more important. And I also think we've got to sort of uh, got to decide what we're going to be doing on Iraq. Iraq's going to be very important. We've got to make some, make some important noises about it. And also something that's going on today, Central African Republic, which we've been ro- reporting mm. about, big meeting in Chad. Is the president, interim president, going to get the bounce? If he does, then the whole thing changes. And that's all we have time for this week. Thanks to all of our guests. If you'd like to join the debate, we're on Twitter. You can tweet us at BFBS SITREP. Remember, you can listen again to this week's programme on our website, bfbs.com slash SITREP. Bye-bye. Sport, sport and music, music for the British forces.